Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and we are going to kick off the post-Thanksgiving Christmas season by talking about Christmas. And I have a special guest on with us, Tom Mullen, who has written a new ebook that you can get online for free or you can order a paperback. It's called An Anti-State Christmas. Tom Mullen hosts the Tom Mullen Talks Freedom podcast, and he is also the author of Where Do Conservatives and Liberals Come From? We should probably have you on to talk about some other time, Tom. But thanks for coming on to talk to us about Christmas. Thank you, Doug. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I don't know how many of our listeners might listen to your podcast or not, but tell us a little bit about you, about your podcast. And I always like to ask people, like, have you always been a libertarian from birth or did you kind of become a libertarian along your life journey? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I've been writing about politics for about 14 years, and I was one of those people that got very inspired by the Ron Paul campaigns. And it wasn't that he converted me to libertarianism, because I already was one. I had, I had been told, actually, uh, seven or eight years before that by a coworker. I could tell you that story as well. But I just, one day, my wife came home and she said, hey, there's a libertarian running for president on the Republican ticket, you know, for the Republican nomination. And I, you know, strutted over to my computer to tell this foolish woman, you know, why she was wrong and why this was just another faker Republican who uh, claimed to be a libertarian. And I started reading his website and I went, oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and then I Googled him and I found that Rudy Giuliani exchange. And I said, um, hon, I think you better get over here and look at this. And after that, I was just like, I can't believe it. I can't believe that there's a person on television saying things that I believe. I didn't think it was possible. So that kind of got me into, well, you know, I'm a good writer, aren't I? No, the answer was no, I was not. But I decided to start writing anyway, and then I got better at it over the years. And, uh, well, here I am 14 years later, and after doing, I, I had a job doing some ghost writing for the last six years, and between that and doing some other things, I got in a position where I could take a shot at doing this podcast. So tell us a little about your podcast. What's the format? Is it like interviews, like kind of like I do, or what's the what do we do there? It's uh, kind of a variety. So I do a lot of interviews, and episode four just premiered today, so it's it's not that long. But I do some interviews. I do some solo episodes to just kind of talk about topics. I have a special um, episode coming up on Wednesday called "The Pilgrims Weren't the Only Ones Who Tried Socialism in America." So going over some of the various different attempts at socialism in the, well, 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. And also, you know, in the future, probably some live stuff and Q&A, but mostly interviews. And I've had some great guests. I had Kevin Goodsman on the very first episode to talk about how we got to a place where 
from beginning from where the legislative power was invested in Congress to, well, the president just makes up a rule and, you know, everyone's got to follow it. How do we get there? Congress just shrugs and says, oh, all right. Right, right. So, um, you know, and a lot of that has to do with the New Deal, which I've been writing about lately, because I don't think people realize how much damage it did and how much it's still affecting our lives. But, uh, you know, we got into all that. And, you know, I've also had Robbie De Niro on, who was a business owner that just refused to close in 2020. I, I'm just not closing. Sorry. And then when the cops came to his place, he said, do you have a warrant? Can you tell me what law I'm breaking? <laughs> and mm. he goes, well, I think you better leave. And then the cops left. And then he went to court against Andrew Cuomo and won. And then Cuomo ordered his business and 80 others opened. So, um, you know, we've had some interesting things and uh, it's really a fun job. There's a lot of work after you get done with these interviews. I, I can tell you that now, but, um, <laughs> but the interview part's fun anyway. Are you talking about like the editing and production? Yeah, yeah, you gotta, you know, you gotta set up websites and show notes and sell things and ads and oh my god, I never knew it was this hard. I would never would have got into it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I get to outsource some of that on my show. I have a great audio editor. Wink, wink to my audio editor, of course. And my time-consuming part is always preparing for these podcasts. And I got to enjoy your new book by sitting by our new fireplace on my iPad reading the PDF copy that you sent me. And I thoroughly enjoyed an anti-state Christmas. And we got in touch right at the right time to record this, to have it ready for... I think most people are ready for Christmas after the Thanksgiving meal. You know, I know some people have their Christmas trees up now. We're recording this before Thanksgiving. And it's like, eh, it's not quite the right time yet for me. So this is like perfect timing. It was just kind of nice. And so I would love to know, like, Why'd you write this book? I mean, there's a lot to say about the birth of Christ, about, you know, some of the Christmas traditions in America, which we'll kind of get into here in a little bit. But uh, tell me some of the motivations behind why you wrote it. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think that society, civil society is under all-out assault right now by the government, right? I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, celebrating the holidays is a time when people get together with family and even that is, you know, frowned upon by the regime to the point where, you know, if they could get away with it, they'd make it illegal. And, you know, I was just thinking that, you know, in, in recent years, it seems like many Catholic, at least pastors, have just become these these woke kind of, you know, Jesus was this, you know, nice, polite person who would never offend anybody. And, you know, you'd almost get the impression that they'd want you to just, you know, go along with everything. Don't make any trouble. And, you know, you'll get your reward in the next life. Turn the other cheek, whatever. You know, that Jesus in the New Testament is nothing like that. I mean, he, he is constantly excoriating what stood for the Jewish government under Roman rule. He's constantly breaking dumb laws that are counterproductive or don't make any sense. Like, I think I... Um, told the story of the guy with the withered hand where, you know, the Pharisees who are trying to kill him right from the beginning of his ministry because he threatens their influence over the people, you know, they try to trip him up by saying, oh, you're going to heal this guy with a withered hand on the Sabbath? And I mean, how relevant is that to, you know, Dr. Fauci wants you to wear your mask or maybe two or three of them 
and do all these things that we can see now don't work, but you're not allowed to treat COVID. You're not allowed to, you know, actually use the inexpensive drugs that look like they're probably effective against it. Oh no, you know, you can't heal the man with the withered hand, but you know, you, you should wash your hands and, you know, then you're complying with the law. So Jesus had no patience for any of this and he wasn't really nice about it. I mean, when he goes to town on them at the end of Matthew, you know, it's a pretty harsh trip to the woodshed for the Pharisees and the scribes. Yeah. One thing that I like about this season is, you know, you're, you're talking about the state just wants us to listen to it and, and not ask questions and whatever is like, I think a lot of people get busy with their own personal lives and they sort of ignore politics in a, in a way. Does that make sense? Oh, it's sure. like, hey, let, let's focus on family and all these different things. And it's like, man, I wish we could just carry that along the whole year, right? <laughs> Where we're just like ignoring what the talking heads on television are saying because we're hanging out, you know, by the fire or wherever, you know, just like doing family things because that's what people are doing. At least that's what I hope they're doing this year. Well, yeah, you know, and I think I agree with that. I wish we could do that. I mean, the regime doesn't want us to do that. It's almost as if, you know, that is the one time where everybody would go back to the family, which the state is always against, always and everywhere, right? Every communist since Plato has wanted to get the kids away from the children and have them educated by the state. And really, the right is not a lot better than this either. But the family is the anti-state. The family is the support system that makes the state irrelevant if it's allowed to get strong enough. So I think, you know, I'm not saying that this is a, a concerted effort just to undermine the family, but it's just very coincidental that, of course, this one time of year is also under attack. You better not get together with more than eight people or, you know, you might spread the virus. Then yeah. you look at a chart, of course, and see that None of the science supports any of this. Not last year at this time of year. It doesn't support that the vaccines made a big difference. You know, none of the science supports any of this. And uh, it just shows, I think, that they just have a instinctive, you know, animosity towards voluntary activity, towards community, towards families, and, of course, towards religion. Well, it's the nature of the beast. I mean, the the whole empire theme in Scripture is very much a totalizing sort of direction, right? Like concentration of power. Caesar wants to be revered as Lord, wants to be the savior of the world, all those kinds of things. And we can see today that, of course, the state wants to sort of usurp authority from the family because it's a competing institution that, of course, makes it irrelevant, like you said. And so it wants to take the place of God. It wants to take the place of parents, it wants to take the place of voluntary authority because it can't survive without demanding. So I want to ask you, because I wrote an article three years ago or so called Jesus Wasn't a Libertarian. And you open up that Jesus was like a great libertarian. We're talking about Christmas. So it's like a great libertarian is born. So there is a way in which we could say, well, of course, Jesus wasn't a libertarian. That that wasn't really invented yet, right? But what do you mean? When, <laughs> what do you mean when you you make comments throughout the book? And I know, of course, what you mean. And it maybe it just it's like one of those like little things for me that's like, yeah, you can't really do that. You can't call him a libertarian. That's an that's anachronistic or something. But what does it even mean to say that Jesus was libertarian? Well, I'll tell you when I started to write the parts of this that 
focus on Jesus, I was, of course, being a little tongue-in-cheek and saying, hey, look how libertarian he was, just to kind of tweak people a little. But I got to tell you, the more I got into it, the, the more the thesis seemed to make sense to me. I mean, as I said, I mean, he goes around flouting laws, not the the laws that should be there or the important ones, love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, love your neighbor right, as yourself. The ones given by God. Right. And, you know, all God says is to honor the Sabbath day. And somehow that became, you can't do any work. And then it became, you can't heal a sick man. And I think, you know, we don't get an explanation. We don't get cliff notes from Jesus. But I think if you're even going to go to the place called you can't work on the Sabbath, what it really means is you shouldn't be working for your own gain on this day. You should be devoting this one day to God. That's the only way to interpret that that whole come from as far as working. And of course, when the man with the withered hand comes up, you know, this is his one chance to be made whole in his whole life. He may never see Jesus again. And of course, this isn't Jesus working for his own gain. It's him helping somebody else. I mean, doing something selfless and something that, you know, will make the world a better place for this guy. So, of course, the right thing to do is to heal the guy's hand, right? But again, you know, the Pharisees, I can't remember if it was the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees, whoever it is that are trying to trip Jesus up over that, they don't care about God during that. That's all political. They want to get him caught so that they can get him on trial and kill him, which they eventually do. So, I mean... You know, and he shows them up for being the petty, evil people that they really are. I've always wondered why, even as a kid, why is healing work? Like, especially if you're God, right? Like, it's, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I was just a naive child, but no, you're right. The larger context is that it really wasn't about whether or not he was healing or working. It was about somehow finding a loophole to get him to, you know, We've recently experienced in our in our country the witness of prosecutorial misconduct. And so this is sort of like you know, the first century version of that. Let's try to get him on something, right? Yeah, I mean, they try to get him on the apostles not washing their hands, right? So he's going around preaching the good news. Your sins can be forgiven. You can have salvation and everlasting life. And they're like, hey, your apostles aren't washing their hands. You know, so this is so transparent. I mean, it's as bad as Fauci, at least, right? So, and, you know, another important thing that Jesus flouts, and, you know, part of my book, Where Do Conservatives and Liberals Come From? You know, I think most people can figure out that libertarians and what we now call liberals or progressives don't have much in common. But often, libertarianism is looked at as a subset of conservatism. And, It's very important, you know, when I use the word social conservatives in that chapter to know what it means. So you can believe that, let's say, adultery is wrong or gay marriage is wrong or or whatever. You know, those are your beliefs. And maybe you think that that's what the Bible says. And all I'm saying in there is that I think the point of him sparing the woman caught in adultery is he's saying this is not something that should be punished by secular laws. This is something she'll be judged by God for. Maybe she'll, you know, seek forgiveness. Maybe she won't, but you certainly aren't going to stone this woman over this. This is not a crime like murder or stealing from somebody. And, you know, one of the points I make is, you know, Jesus says, you know, whoever 
is without sin can cast the first stone. He shames everybody. They leave. And one of the versions, he just writes in the sand and we don't know what he wrote. But in any case, when he gets crucified and there's a guy being crucified with him for, I believe, robbery, it's pretty harsh when you think about it. He doesn't really object to that. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with punishing a criminal for a real crime. He doesn't want to punish adultery, at least in this world. But then when he saves her from being stoned, you know, he then speaks to her and says, you know, this is wrong what you did. Please avoid this sin in the future. So he's not condoning it. So I guess my whole point here is there's a, a line between what should be punished by the law and then what things you have, you know, you're responsible for on your own that are not illegal, that are part of your morality. So that to me, when you say social conservative, I'm, I think that's a political term mm-hmm. that only means people who believe these moral issues should be settled by the law. How do you, in your mind, determine what's a, a man-made law versus a moral law? You talk about this in that chapter, which, by the way, is a fun chapter name. Jesus dunks on the right. That's kind of cool. It's not exactly holiday terminology, but it's it's actually a fun chapter title. And you also talk about Jesus dunking on the left, so that's good, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But how do we determine moral law versus a man-made law? I mean, do speed limits come under there, or is it more like how do we personally decide which ones to ignore if that's what we're really actually supposed to do? Do they violate a property right, somebody else's property mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Would you say, are they harming somebody? Well, harming gets real fuzzy sometimes. Does, so I like yeah. to stick to property. You have a right to what you own and nothing else. Now, the woman caught in adultery, I'm a little fuzzy on whether she was married, the guy was married, they were both married. If she was married, she may have violated a marriage contract. How was it exactly that she was caught by the, these Pharisees? <laughs> Yeah, I don't. <laughs> she was caught in the act. It's like mm, just soliciting or caught in the act. Like, you know, you kind of wonder, like, well, were they involved? Was it a setup? And you have those kinds of things. Well, the reason I ask this is actually somewhat personal. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So I like to take my dog to the park. And there are a lot of parks that have signs that say your dog must be on a leash, right? Like public community parks. And I have a remote collar for my dog and he's very obedient when it's on. And I like to throw one of those chuck it, you know, balls to, you know, a hundred feet or so because he loves to run and it wears him out faster and he's a happy dog, right? Well, I was at a park like pretty much alone one morning about a week or two ago and just nobody, but there's this walking trail and this lady was walking her dog and she was like, sir, you need to have your dog on a leash. And I said, well, I do. My dog's like 100 feet out, right? And she's like, well, I don't see it. (laughs) Of course, she can't see the leash because it's a remote leash. And I told her it was wireless. And then she just kind of shook her head and kept walking. And then I thought, (laughs) all right, so if she's here again next time and she like makes a big deal out of it and then she maybe tells like the local like superintendent or whatever, like I don't know who's in charge of the park or whatever. And I think that is the law or the rules at the park. It's like... I mean, do I really, am I really violating it? Is it really, like, I don't even know how I would argue my way out of, like, no, I should be allowed to do this. My dog's not harming anybody or my dog's not literally aggressing against any other dog or human. Anyway, I don't know. You have any advice for me? This seems like a man-made law. Plus, it's a personal thing I want to ask you about. Well, I mean, public property doesn't work. And this is another great example why. 
Okay, so if it's private property, they could say you can't have a wireless leash and you got to have a pink shirt on when you walk your dog or whatever. I mean, you can yeah. make your own rules on private property. And I would understand that. Right. So, yeah, of course, you know, you had your dog restrained by technology that neither her nor, you know, over the hill guys like me would probably understand. But, you know, there's no victim there. There's no invasion of any property right. You know, so I think that's left to, you know, and I don't, I don't know what law the creator of the universe would be worried about you violating <laughs> doing that either. So I think well, it's got am better I putting things other people? Am I putting other people at risk of my dog, you know, hurting them like or imminent risk or threat or danger? Yeah, I realize that got, that could be a slippery slope, too, because that's what justifies all the, the lockdown stuff. But and mask mandates and all that. But like my dog was literally doing nothing that would be harmful. and. You're right. It was restrained, right? Which is the purpose of a leash, wired or wireless. And so, yeah, no, that's where my mind went when I was standing there, kept throwing and, you know, just kind of going with like, well, this is public property. That's illegitimate. But I'm like, I can't argue that with a cop because, you know, <laughs> like if a cop showed up. But anyway. Well, is there a rule um, yeah. that says that you can't have a wireless leash? Well, I mean, that's the technicality in my mind. That's where it would have gone for me. It's like, well, it doesn't say it has to be a physical leash. And it also, my son actually said, he's like, well, if he's on a leash, do you have to be holding the other end? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't say we have to be connected, right? right? Like what the whole, the spirit of the law is, the dog is restrained and obedient and unable to, you know, go further, right? And that's what the wireless does. So anyway, we don't, we don't have to go too far down the uh, trail with my dog problems. <laughs> or my community park <laughs> rebellions. You make this comment in that chapter, how social conservatives violate their own principles. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I think that's important for them to recognize. Yeah, the point that I'm making about violating their own principles is that you'll hear, especially conservatives in this century, say that you know proponents of Islam advocate propagating the faith by the sword. So, you know, when you make a law that is enforced at sword point or gunpoint or, you know, whatever you want to say. So if you've got a law that says, you know, you shouldn't engage in this victimless, but perhaps immoral behavior, then ultimately that law is backed by violence. Even a parking ticket is ultimately backed by violence. I actually found this out firsthand that, yeah, of course, you know, you, you do a parking ticket, you don't pay the fine. And they send you a nasty gram and you ignore the nasty gram. And they send you another one. And maybe they call you the court. And if you don't show up, sooner or later, men with guns are going to come to your, your house and yeah. come get you. And it's the same with any other law about public drunkenness, you know, disturbing the peace. That's another great catch-all for anything that, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a status cop doesn't like, right? You're disturbing the peace. So, you know, when you enforce no, sir, a you are disturbing the peace. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I'm I'm peacefully stumbling down the sidewalk. I don't know. You came you came up to me and started harassing me. But uh yeah, so you know, when you enforce a law like that, or when you make a law like that like that, I should say, it it is propagating your faith by the sword. You're you're violating that principle that you say that you don't believe in. So how does Jesus dunk on the left? Let's talk about that. That's actually one of my favorite topics, because it's so interesting to me that when you read the Gospels and, of course, the New Testament as a whole, that you don't get 
the picture that Jesus was completely anti-wealth or even anti-wealth at all. And it had to do more with what you say is like the passions we have toward wealth. How do we manage one's relationship with wealth? So do you think Jesus would endorse Pope Francis? I can't believe that he, he would because, I mean, Jesus came to earth, right, to tell people that there is a lot longer to life than the 75, 80 years you're going to get, you know, if you don't get your head chopped off by a Roman soldier. So, I mean, he said over and over, my kingdom is not of this world. I think you've got to take that he exaggerates sometimes for effect, sets mm-hmm. the bar really high, knowing we're not going <laughs> to not going to quite make it like go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And that's the time. I think that's a passage where most lefties would say, see, he's a socialist. He doesn't want you to be rich. Well, that's not what socialism really means. And, (laughs) and just being rich is not what capitalism really means. He says, don't be consumed by wealth where you can no longer be a good person, where you can no longer remember what's important which is that eternity beyond the 75, 80 years, you're going to be kicking around this mortal coil. But also because Jesus often says, give to the poor, somehow the left, which can never distinguish between voluntary and coerced behavior, you know, they only have two categories, those things which are mandated and those things which are prohibited. They just can't imagine there's anything other than that, like, civil society, like all the yeah. all the things we do voluntarily with each other, for each other, cooperation. And really the point of this chapter is to show how many times in his parables, Jesus uses property owners and capitalists, not only as the heroes, but often to actually represent God. So in the parable of the vineyard, this is in Matthew chapter 21, he not only, you know, represents God as a vineyard owner, but he goes out of his way and I think it's verse 33 to say, you know, how he improves his land, how he hedges his vineyard and he builds a tower. And basically what he shows is that is capitalism. That's a capitalist slash entrepreneur fulfilling both roles, taking a piece of land that was just a piece of land and making it into an opportunity, a productive asset that the husbandmen can come and just apply their labor to, just like an employer creates that opportunity for employees. Okay, and and the husbandmen, of course, go back on the deal. They murder the people who come to get the vineyard owner's percentage of the profits. And then he sends his son and they murder the son. So, I mean, really the husbandmen are the Bolsheviks. They're the ones who just Mm want to kill the rich people and take over their land, even though you know, the the capitalist actually provided that opportunity. Now, you know, I know everyone's screaming and saying, that's not what it means. You know, I understand the vineyard owner is supposed to be God and the, the messengers he sends are supposed to be the prophets and his son is supposed to be Jesus. And he's saying, look, God is going to sweep you away and replace you because you've done a bad job. But just ask yourself, If you're going to tell a symbolic story and you're an anti-capitalist or a socialist, would you tell a symbolic story where the capitalist turns out to be the hero? And it's the same thing with the three stewards. You know, the steward who does not invest the money, he does not act as a capitalist. He's the one that gets cast into the outer darkness. Now, again, that story is also symbolic, 
but these are not the literary tools of a socialist, okay? Yeah, this right. Is, you know, Jesus assumes that capitalism is right. I've often thought the same thing where, you know, yeah, you, you've just made the point. I don't want to like reiterate it too much, but it's like, well, that was the analogy he used. You think he's just going to use the opposite analogy by the way he thinks? Like this is something that was common to each of them, to him and, and to his hearers, and they, they understood that. Hi, this is Dr. Norman Horn. And if you like the Libertarian Christian podcast, then you'll definitely like our other podcast, Good News, Bad News, a roundtable where you can join me, Matt, Carrie, Doug, Aaron, and others as we analyze the news from a Libertarian Christian perspective. Check us out on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, or on libertarianchristians.com slash roundtable. Jesus's attitude toward wealth is probably the biggest reason why people, even if they're not sort of socialists, or like Christian socialists or whatever, they are at least against this accumulation of wealth. Right now, we're at a period of time where the pandemic and the market operations during the pandemic have enriched a lot of tech CEOs in an amount that's actually a lot higher than in typical years. And everybody's turning their heads and they're looking at all the billionaires flying into space and you know making all this money. And they're like, that shouldn't be. And some of them are pointing to Jesus saying that we shouldn't accumulate wealth. What do you think Jesus really would say or do about this? Well, again, I mean, Jesus says, don't be consumed by it. It's hard to get into the kingdom of heaven when you're a wealthy person because it can be a distraction, he says. But what's the beginning of that passage? The guy says, well, it's not a sin to be wealthy, is it? And he says, no, it's not. Okay, so it really is not a matter of you know, accumulating wealth that has nothing to do with capitalism or socialism mm -hmm. because people do it in both systems. It's how did you accumulate it? Okay. And the, the reason that it's so bad that these tech giants became so much wealthier during the pandemic is not just because they became wealthier. It's because the government closed all their competition down. All right. That's not capitalism. That's fascism, really. Yeah, and where were these people in April of 2020 when we were all wondering, hold on, all of the people like you and me were saying, wait, you mean Walmart, Amazon, Target, all the big box retailers, all of the big corporations are allowed to be open because they're essential, but the mom and pop small store who sold like basically the equivalent of a department from within Target or Walmart or one, any of those aren't allowed? Like, where was the left then? Yeah, I mean, it's they only have one speed, right? They, that they can't. And, of course, they assume that if you defend capitalism, I don't know, I guess now you voted for Donald Trump, who really isn't that pro-capitalist to begin with. <laughs> but, you know, it's back when the I remember the TARP bailouts. And then, you know, not long after that, Obama came in and he wanted to do some other trillion-dollar disaster for mortgages or something. And of course, the first thing, well, where were you during the tar bailouts? You didn't object to that. Yeah, yeah. Here's 24 articles I wrote. Let them go bankrupt. That's capitalism. You know, losses yeah. are part of capitalism. You know, if you make a bad investment, you're supposed to suffer losses. So I don't mind what aboutism because we're pretty consistent on this. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, where yeah, were you we're, when? We're like, yeah, we were we were against that too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Bring it on, man. <laughs> But you don't care about wars, you know? You don't mind get people getting rich off those. Yeah, yeah, we do. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. I actually was uh, employed somewhere before I went self-employed. 
when Donald Trump was elected. And what one of my leftist friends actually said was, well, I guess we can go out and protest against war again. <laughs> I'm like, wait, you mean it was okay when Obama did it? <laughs> they just kind of shrugged. Like, I'm not yeah. kidding. It was just like, it was just brazen. Well, I guess we now have somebody to be against and uh, yeah, we'll go protest war. Yeah, plus that was one of the good things about him, you know? <laughs> and that's another funny thing about Trump. He He's such a, I don't know what you'd call it, an enigma, but everything they hate about him are mostly the good things. And then they, they don't care about the bad stuff that he does. Uh, I don't think Biden has uh, lifted any of his tariffs yet, has he? At this point, the last I've read in, in terms of headlines is that he's he's upheld them or there's like a, this sort of comment in the subhead of the articles that I've kind of come across that he's like, the way that the media seems to portray it is more like, well, he's he's declining to do anything about it now or he's sort of, you know, keeping it for now. It's very tentative as if, and I'm just like, are you kidding me? Although I do think, I do think that the one this is particularly important for me, is I think the tariffs, I could be wrong, but I know that the price of Kerrygold has gone down at Costco by like $1.50, which is a lot for that amount of butter. And I think the tariffs from Ireland that Trump instituted, I remember this being a thing because I knew the price of my butter was going to go up and it's actually come back down again. And I think it's because Biden lifted one of those tariffs. So maybe we got one of them. <laughs> I don't know. My butter, is, my butter is more reasonably priced now. Yeah, you know, the funny thing while he was in there and, you know, the left is hopeless on economics. I mean, there's just there's just no hope, right? But you used to kind of be able to count on him for the wars a little bit. Oh, I know. And then they really had, they hated this guy so much that they had to actually back war and criticize him for some of the good things he, or some of the less bad things he wanted to do on foreign policy. I mean, he never promised to bring any troops home like Ron Paul did, but, you know, he didn't go crazy like the last two presidents did. And, and that was good. That was a good yeah. thing that it was less frenetic. We had less terrorism and nobody seems to have made that connection. And that's what they attack him over. You're even going to be pro-war as long as that's Andy Trump. It's, it's just crazy. They've, yeah. they've lost their minds. Yeah, no, I, I get it. So speaking of losing our minds, in a sort of terrible segue to what I want to ask you next. How do we get in the mood for Christmas season? I feel like I'm not ready for it. I feel like politics and the news cycle has just inundated us with so much content that tends to polarize us that is sort of almost designed to do so. I don't know if I can get in the spirit of Christmas unless we get like a major snowstorm this weekend. <laughs> well, I, I think it depends on where you are and who you know. You know, I live in New York, the People's Republic of New York, but um, I live in an area of New York that's very conservative. So these people are not libertarians by any stretch. But I mean, during the election, it was like Trump fever around here. And, you know, they actually were very compliant with like mask mandates when the mandates were in, in effect. But the day they were lifted, all the masks were gone. Okay. And like last Thanksgiving and Christmas, we just went to visit the people we always do. And I think people have to be ready to do that. Just ignore them. I mean, turn the television off. No SWAT team is going to come to your house because you're having a Christmas party. Okay. It's just, it's not going to happen. Most of the sheriffs don't even support this. 
And even the few nutty ones that do, they've got too much to do to worry about you, believe me. So we've got to ignore these people. That's number one. And, you know, really, it's almost a revolutionary act to do the most anti-status thing in the world, which is to get together with your family. You know, if you get my book, and not to throw a plug in there, I've got a fantastic beverage recipe for what's called Glühwein in uh, Germany. And that'll get you in the mood because I had the good fortune to go to a Christmas market when I was there on business in December back in the mid-2000s. And uh, we had quite a bit of this stuff. And I'll tell you what, it was jingle all the way for the rest of the night. Nice. Nice. Well, you know, the end of your book also has a very nice poem. I don't know if you want to give everybody the title of it, but this is like, I don't want to undermine the rest of the book because it was all really good, but this is like worth the price of admit, of downloading it. <laughs> well, sorry, that sounds like it wasn't worth anything because it's a free ebook on your website. No, but that's but, my like, favorite it's, part. <laughs> it, it's okay, good. <laughs> well, it's called The Night Before New Normal Christmas. I can give a preview if you want me to read some of it. Oh, sure, please. All right. So after you've had your glue vine and you got to use my recipe because that'll get you right there where you need to be. No driving after this, by the way. So then, of course, you got to get everybody back inside and uh, around the fire if you have one. And somebody's got to do some reading. And usually it's the night before Christmas. We're going to do the night before new normal Christmas this year. And it goes like this. This is the beginning. Twas the night before Christmas when all through the town, not a creature was stirring. All were safely locked down. The masks were all hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Fauci soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of booster shots invaded their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap lay six feet apart for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what did my wondering eyes see arrive but a government agent walking straight up my drive? And if you want the rest, you're going to have to go to antistatechristmas.com. All you got to do is give up your email address and you can download a copy for free. Read the rest. Well, Tom, I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing that especially reading that there at the end uh, with our listeners. And I look forward to hearing from you again and chatting with you in the future. Listeners, go download the book. Give Tom your email. I'm sure he'll send you also other things. What you might also want to know is, I was telling Tom this before we recorded, was that I actually was sending relevant content to my leftist friends from Tom way back in 2010. Tom's been writing for a very long time. He's got great stuff. You can uh, check out his blog. Uh, Tom, why don't you give us uh, your blog address so people can read you online? It's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com. And all my over 500 articles are there. You can get links to my books. And also uh, the podcast loads up there as well as Apple and Stitcher and all the rest. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. Thanks for having me, Doug. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. 
If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.